Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Joanne Guo. And I'm Sarah Gerber. We are the co-hosts of the Track 2 Podcast. The Track 2 Podcast explores the stories and people who create conditions for a thriving, vibrant society. This season, we bring you the voices of stakeholders who help shape philanthropy. Today, we're in conversation with Grant Faulkner, writer, author, and executive director of National Novel Writing Month, affectionately known as NaNoWriMo. Grant has written two books on writing, Pep Talks for Writers, 52 Insights and Prompts to Boost Your Creative Mojo, and Brave the Page, a teen writing guide co-authored with Rebecca Stern. His forthcoming book, All the Comfort Sin Provides, will be released in 2021 from Black Lawrence Press. Grant is co-founder of the lit journal 100 Word Story and the Flash Fiction Collective. He's a member of the Oakland Book Festival's Literary Council, National Writing Project Writers' Council, and of Aspen Words Creative Council. Grant received a BA from Grinnell College in English and a Master's in Creative Writing from San Francisco State University. The primary way we make meaning in the world is through the stories we tell ourselves. We are just storytelling creatures. We wake up and we start telling a story. It might be inaccurate, we might have misperceptions, we might have objections, of be overly optimistic or overly negative, but whatever it is, we live in a story and that story can be shaped in different directions. And part of your consciousness of the story that you live within is like writing the story on the page and experiencing your imagination. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. It's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. So I do want to start off with a question we've been asking everyone this season, which is, when did you first become interested in philanthropy or where did philanthropy start to enter your journey? How interesting. I remember hearing the term philanthropy when I guess I was a teenager and I didn't even really know what it meant. When I truly knew how it functioned in society was when I started working for nonprofits. Even though I went to a very liberal-minded college and plenty of people who went there got into nonprofit work afterwards, I had no idea how one goes about working for a nonprofit. It was a it was a mm-hmm. sphere of life that was like kind of hidden. And this is like late 80s, early 90s. I started working formally for a nonprofit, the uh, National Writing Project in 2005. I worked in communications and editorial as, as a writer. That's when I started getting interested in how we fund things, how we decide what's important, how we decide what has impact, how we go about getting that money, whether it's from government foundations, individual participants in NaNoWriMo's case, or, you know, major funders. It's fascinating because it reveals a lot about who we are as a culture, where the money comes from and what it goes to. It reveals a lot of like the possibilities and and who we look to for the answers in the end. And there are a lot of limits there. We're living in an interesting age. I'm hoping that philanthropy will largely be redefined. And even our notions of wealth and our notions of giving, I'd love to see them redefined. We have this notion that wealthy people should save us. That that really bugs me. I love that there's a, a trend of wealthy people giving more or that there's this pledge for them to give away their money eventually. I don't really know when they're going to give, give it away. It seems out there in the, in the far distant future. We need to be thinking more broadly than just identifying the top 50 wealthy people and, and, and just assign them, save us from the pandemic, save us from poverty, whatever it is. We need to have wider societal sort of projects that, that involve a, a lot of different areas of society. Right now we're working in a disjointed, chaotic, random fashion that's not efficient, that's not taking care of the problems. 
And that, that really relies on us, a lot of our old sort of capitalist instincts to worship those who have the money to allow them to give us the answers and determine things. And I don't think they're doing a good job of that. Yeah. There's so much in there. These are all the things that we're talking about. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's like, yeah. How, how is the space being redefined? What does that look like? How's it working and not working? And who are those people who are having an impact? So Grant, talk through your experience in philanthropy and supporting writing as part of our society, part of our culture, part of ways that we express ourselves. I took over NaNoWriMo for Chris Beatty, who founded it in 1999. And I came on in 2012. And as I mentioned earlier, I was with the National Writing Project, which was my first big nonprofit job. And, and we were focused on improving the teaching of writing in the nation's schools. And it was a very different nonprofit than this in the sense that we worked mainly in the educational realm and with teachers, helping them become better teachers. It was an interesting learning experience for me, especially as the internet was just taking off. Because one thing that I learned is that, that we are living in the golden age of writing because everybody is essentially a writer. And there's this wonderful educational scholar, Deborah Brandt, who said, writing is the work of our time. She considers it that writing has unfortunately always been what she calls a second literacy. It's secondary to reading, but it needs to be a primary literacy. Because if you think about it, so many people are on social media every day, expressing themselves in words, persuading people, telling stories, making political statements. Writing has never been more important. That's fueled my own mission is, is to help as many people as possible be better writers and also to provide greater access to be a writer, no matter, I mean, there's so many different levels of being a writer, but just, just to find oneself and be able to express oneself in words. And so that led me to National Novel Writing Month because I'm also like, I've been a fiction writer my entire adult life and have my MFA in fiction. And so when I came on in 2012, I mean, what's fascinating to me about National Novel Writing Month, I mean, back in the day, only very privileged people would even try to write a novel, let alone write one and get it published. And this sort of audacious, crazy premise that everyone can write a novel, that everyone should write a novel, is wild and transformative. For, for listeners who might not know, we now have about 500,000 people who sign up to write novels every year, and that includes 100,000 kids and teens in our Young Writers program. These are yeah. people who write on every single level. Some of them end up being best-selling novelists. Some of them write novel after novel after novel, and they're perfecting their craft. Other people just like to show up and write with their friends and have fun and be playful. There are a lot of different ways to be a writer and participate in our programs. I think it's amazing to have so many people make creativity a priority for a month and, and creativity for creativity's sake, which I think we're also lacking. It's a challenge these days in our society. Mm -hmm. We're becoming more and more professionalized. People don't have hobbies the way they used to. So I think this idea that no matter if you've taken writing workshops or been in an MFA program or even read a novel, the idea that you can show up and write a novel with us is sort of this amazing premise because we believe that everyone's a creator. We believe that the way we make meaning in the world is through the stories we tell. So anyone can do it. Pulling that into the podcast, how we express ourselves is part of how we live together. The kinds of conditions and systems and structures we build start first with how we communicate about them. But when they're just ideas before they're formed, before they're built, to me, it's such a fundamental building block of how to build a thriving society. It's fascinating to hear how year after year you're creating this space for people to engage in. 
stories have a very fundamental place in the way that we perceive and understand the world, whether it's movies or written stories, writing poetry or writing in a journal. There are all ways that we find ourselves, connect with ourselves, connect with other people, connect with the world, with the future, with the universe itself, connect with what's out there and what's what's going to happen. It's valuable as a hobby. And that's part of what's so special about NaNoWriMo is the act of flexing this muscle. I would like to hear more about science fiction, building on asking why mm-hmm. or what if when you intersect science fiction and something like climate change where people can't necessarily see those immediate effects, you have this ability to ignite their imagination about what it would be like to live in an arid wasteland. There was a poll of scientists, and 75% of them became scientists because of reading science fiction when they were young. There's this question embedded in every story, what if? That's one of the most important questions for all of life. And writers ask it every day. And so writing trains the mind to explore what if. In order to think well, we have to be able to receive somebody else's story, somebody else's creation, and make it meaningful inside our own mind. That's the gift of learning to write, to take on different perceptions, developing that muscle for vision and creativity. One of the reasons that humans have a really hard time changing their behavior is that they just simply can't imagine it. Several years ago, we did this joint project of science's story, how fiction influences science and vice versa. It was the Center for the Science and the Imagination, and they're at Arizona State. And people have a really hard time imagining climate change. They look at statistics, they might read New Yorker articles, but story is what can make that really vivid. They need to be in the story, looking at the world through the eyes of the characters, and to see that sort of dystopian world that results. Yeah. At some medical schools, humanities are a part of higher learning training process, because in fact, you're working people. Mm -hmm. So much of the treatment is about healing the person as well as their body. If you want to understand what's happening with someone, you have to understand their environment. If they're having trouble breathing, you have to understand, are there environmental factors? Is there uh, a mental health issue going on? Like what's driving anxiety? Where is this person living? Those doctors are the ones who can hear the story the patient has to tell. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I've ever had a doctor hear my story like the story of how I live my life and what might be influencing certain medical conditions. I think storytelling is part of the fabric of our everyday life. And it needs to be recognized as like one of those, like just what you're saying, the story can lead to the solution. But so much of the medical realm is about collecting the blood samples and sending them down for uh, analysis, which is, of course, is very important. But the story is very important, too. To your point, it, it has to be a part of looking at the whole person. Yeah. I love when I hear that doctors have been trained in this or that it's a part of the practice. That's where I hope we're going in all aspects of storytelling. In our educational system right now, there's a big push to prioritize nonfiction, reading and writing. I think we're living in a data-driven culture that values facts and values hard facts. And there's this premise that by kind of knowing facts and knowing more facts, that will help students professionally as well. And I would argue that we need the opposite. We need people to be exploring their imagination, their feelings, and empathy, and building that connection that you talked about. The leading question of all fiction writing is, what if? Like, what if this happens to the world or to my character? Then what happens? 
and it's a series of answering the question, what if? It does spark that imagination of other worlds and wanting to understand them. And so often the way we understand them is through our stories. We have to create stories. And so often those stories actually lead to scientific experiments, to theories, to testing them. It's just the way our brains work. The primary way we make meaning in the world is through the stories we tell ourselves. We are just storytelling creatures. We wake up and we start telling a story. It might be inaccurate. We might have misperceptions. We might have projections of be overly optimistic or overly negative. But whatever it is, we live in a story. And that story can be shaped in different directions. And part of your consciousness of the story that you live within is like writing the story on the page and experiencing your imagination. I have this dream that the the curriculum isn't designed with borders around it. The science part of my college campus was separate from the humanities part. They were in different buildings, different parts of the campus, as if they needed to be separate. But what if we constructed curriculum where science and story spoke to each other? What if kids, when they read novels, not only developed literary critique skills or reading skills, but also started testing whatever happens in Star Wars or Star Trek? What if they did scientific experiments? Like somebody like me who was alienated by science, I would be invited into it if the stories I read could end up in the laboratory. That that goes both ways. The way we write and create stories around something can inform each other. I would love a world where we don't have the science building uh, half a mile away from the humanities building and that people are much more kind of engaged with their learning preference. Somewhat similar to how stories shape the framework that we view problems in Mm -hmm. and how that then shapes the framework that we see solutions in, even in philanthropy the role of storytelling plays a really significant part of understanding the problems that we need to address and how we might go about the solutions. I'm curious how you've seen storytelling play out under the umbrella of philanthropy or the structure of philanthropy. Any illustration that drives at that as a concept? Mm -hmm. One thing that a lot of people don't know about NaNoWriMo because they think of it as an event because it takes place every November, you write 50,000 words Mm -hmm. in, in a month. I prefer to think of NaNoWriMo not as an event, but as a community. And the way I like Mm. to tell the story of NaNoWriMo is to imagine Mr. Rogers. There's that famous photo of him sitting, cooling his feet with a black police officer who he's invited to cool his feet with him. You know, and everyone knows Mm -hmm. that the central premise of Mr. Rogers is, won't you be my neighbor, which is this beautiful Mm -hmm. premise. It's a premise of outreach and inclusion. And that's the way I think of National Novel Writing Month, is we're essentially asking other people to write a story with us and won't be our neighbor. And and part of that is, is because if you think about who gets to be a creator or who gets to be a writer, historically been a matter of privilege who gets to be a writer. And so like if you think about concentric circles around the, the center, you have to have a certain amount of wealth or privilege to see yourself as a writer, to say, I'm going to be a writer, or I'm going to write a novel in a month. All of those statements generally revolve around the privilege of being able to see yourself that way, to have that encouragement, whether it comes from teachers or parents or wider society, to even have that kind of idea that you could do something as the word you used, frivolous, to write a novel, to not do something that would like earn money 
or pay for food and shelter. And so, so many people actually don't see themselves as writers. They're living on the outer edges of those concentric circles. No one's inviting them mm. to be my neighbor or to write a novel with me. And so part of NaNoWriMo's storyline is, is that we are trying to find a way to get to those outer circles where people don't see themselves as writers, don't feel any sort of support, and invite them in. We're essentially asking them to be our neighbor. A lot of our community currently are, are younger white people, essentially, because they have felt that privilege to tell their story. And so we are trying to broaden our community and be more inclusive. What you were both touching on is hard to define something that in some ways has not had a value assigned to it other than the outcome. Your writing mm -hmm. is worth something if it turns into a blockbuster film, if exactly. it turns into an award-winning XYZ. And this is, again, why I think it's more entrepreneurial. But I think it's really important. It's how we assign value right. to people's work. And so yeah. people invest in things that others encourage them to invest in. Mm -hmm. I think the human imagination is something that has to be cultivated like a garden. It takes a lot of time to turn the soil and to fertilize it. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked is what happens to all these novels? And what's behind that question is if they aren't published, if they're not made into a product that is valued, can be purchased or gives people money, then it's not of, of value. To write a novel just for the sake of writing a novel tends to be looked down on. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there is an economic question in creativity. And I think like the way we've structured our society is that we tend to esteem people and things by the amount of money that they, they produce. Writers are largely, I mean, if you're talking about it in economic senses, they're largely exploited by the publishing industry. I feel like the amount of time and sweat equity people spend perfecting their craft, working through manuscripts, working on what they hope will someday become a book, that's a startup. Oh, totally. And what you're expected to do today is very much run a business. Entirely. I, I've, I said that even when I first started writing 30 years ago. It was like an mm. entrepreneurial endeavor. And I even got dinged once in a job interview where they were like, oh, all you writers, you know, I know you like to wake up late and go out and party at night and, you know, write when you're inspired. And I was like, no, 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 no. We wake up early. We work hard. It takes a lot of hard work to be a writer. And just as you're saying, there are all these other things, especially these days, that you have to be a business person. All the work that goes into being a writer, most writers, if they tallied it all up, they wouldn't be making minimum wage. I'm positive that the amount of money I've earned from my writing, I'm below minimum wage. And I think most writers are. So, mm -hmm. yeah, anyway. This is it. So this point that you just made about being less than minimum wage, some of the discussion we have about things like the platform economy is looking mm. at what a fair wage is and the assets that people bring. Now, I don't want to think about your brain necessarily being only an asset, Grant, or Sarah, for that mm -hmm. matter, like as creative folks, because we don't want anybody harvesting your brains, right? I mean, in some ways, maybe that's what social media is already doing. But in all seriousness, mm -hmm. it's not nice to think about every part of your body as something that could be monetized. I wonder if we were able to calculate the time, how fair is it? Lawyers bill by the minute. The publishers have been getting a really good deal, especially for proven writers, right? 
it's a question. It takes an entrepreneurial mindset to want to get into it and stick with it. It's also important that we spend some time outside of the classroom cultivating a group of young artists who want to explore the limits, the depths of their imagination. And that wouldn't be possible without organizations like NaNoWriMo. It's true. It's making me think about philanthropy's role inside the system. NaNoWriMo is a nonprofit. I'm just curious about this intersection as we think about the role of philanthropy, its purpose, where it can be supportive in a thriving society. Also balancing this need for writers to be economically supported and the tension of those two things. I'm curious how you may have worked out some of that tension, which is kind of what you're getting at already. It makes sense for, say, NaNoWriMo to be a nonprofit. And then at the same time, does that, and I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but help perpetuate a value problem inside writing itself. My immediate response to that is I think that's framing it in the economic system, which is probably not what we want to do. But I'm curious to like tease out that tension a little bit more around how to hold the value. What are the systems and structures that help support that? Yeah, I, th- I think we're such a gate crashing organization and we're gate crashing both in terms of like crashing the gates to allow everyone to be a creator and to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And we're also crashing the gates by we don't focus on the publishing industry, but because we've ha- helped make so many people creators, we've crashed the gates of publishing too. It's really changed publishing to have thousands of people finish their books every November. So I think we're changing an economic system by by sort of democratizing it, I think. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, we're we're also upholding this notion that being creative for the sake of being creative is a very valuable human thing. That's why I mentioned that question that I get, like, what happens to all these novels? As if there's no value in them unless they're published. But of course they're valuable. I mean, I hear so many people who've had life-changing experiences because they wrote a novel with us. It's like Mm. climbing a mountain or finishing a marathon. They've proven something to themselves and they've explored life in a different way. And it's deeply Mm. meaningful to have those experiences. And part of the gift for NaNoWriMo is this spirit of encouragement. If you go into our NaNoWriMo forums or or witness things on Twitter with the NaNoWriMo hashtag, everyone's encouraging everybody. There's so many writing communities where people are competing with each other to get published or to get the publishing deal. And we don't have that type of competition. Our competition's about achievement and fulfilling your dreams and reaching your creative potential. And so it's really interesting to me, like once you've created a community like that, how I see them, they all take a cue from from the other people and they practice this wonderful ethos of generosity and community building. And so it's magical. It keeps the nonprofit afloat. The number one way we get new writers is by a writer inviting his or her friend to join in. Right. We don't get it. We don't get new writers through marketing or publicity, <laughs> really. It's all about the community. So yeah, it's, I always say that if NaNoWriMo, the organization, for whatever reason, went away, it would be fascinating because NaNoWriMo would keep going on. And that's because the community would keep it going on. When we talk about like philanthropy, I mean, the thing we haven't gotten to is that NaNoWriMo is funded largely by these individuals who write. We're one of the few participant funded organizations. Mm -hmm. Our average donation is like $26. And so it's because of all these people, these thousands of people who have a good experience writing a novel and believe in us as a community. And that's, that's our main source of philanthropy. As much as we'd like Elon Musk to shift his uh, attentions away from Mars 
and more to the imagination on earth. We don't have donors like him. We, we're a small nonprofit serving a huge world of, of writers. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's a, a powerful example of what I think is emerging collective power and I, like the power of scale with small contributions. Like this means a lot. And I think a little bit of an ownership aspect to it too. Totally. Like, okay, I'm contributing a financial resource or capital to this thing that matters that I find value in. There's a connection to it in that exchange, which is going to have a very big tonal impact on the organization. I would feel very different if that's not part of how you guys are structured. And I think people are going to, without maybe understanding it, feel that in terms of how the community is impacting them. Absolutely. I think that's the key to it in the end is that people feel such an affinity or some of our participants feel such an affinity for our organization that it's it's not like giving to other nonprofits where you might be giving mm-hmm. to another institution, another organization. It's, it's like they're giving to their family in some way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, they're giving to a principle of life that they've experienced and they want to see it keep going in the world. And it's giving to themselves, too. Exactly. The, the number one reason they give is because they had a good experience writing a novel, which, which really just means they had a good experience being a creator in a community of creators. Mm. Yeah. I like the power of the collective, this mm-hmm. concept where you have people giving something and also you can direct that energy toward something else. So obviously they need a leader. It's an important role for you, Grant. <laughs> good to have a leader. I think it's also helpful to have certain resources available to help the structures live on and to have some continuity and some guardrails. So sometimes I hear other nonprofit board leaders talk about executive pay, and I'm always a little bit discouraged when people don't fully appreciate just what it takes to keep an organization robust and alive to keep the community alive, the community of supporters, community of volunteers, community of participants, whatever it may be. I think that that's one facet of philanthropy that's important. We shouldn't ask people to take a vow of poverty in order to lead a philanthropic organization. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, we should pay for performance. You should pay for exceptional talent. And I think while we want to see our contributions maximized, there should be expectations of fairness to the people who are there keeping the flame alive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can't remember who said this, but somebody who was a famous commentator, just that you shouldn't have to be a martyr to work for a nonprofit. And I think that there's this yeah. um, idea from a lot of people, including nonprofit workers, that you should be a martyr. You shouldn't ask for money. You shouldn't ask for more money. And I happen to think that, I mean, one, everyone deserves just compensation. Nonprofit workers all need to be, almost generally, all need to be paid more. They're underpaid. Teachers are underpaid. Mm-hmm. Nurses are underpaid. There are a bunch of different professions that we just take people for granted and allow them to be martyrs, and they shouldn't have to do that. What I'm hearing in that is also part of the earlier point around the stories and narratives that we have that are shaping things. So there's a story mm-hmm. that yeah. people who work on profit space should be martyrs. And it's mm-hmm. it's a very impactful story for how this space is shaped. 
Yeah, it is. It's unfortunate because I think sometimes, like when I was saying that that we esteem people by how much money they have, I mean, that happens mm. with nonprofit workers too. If you talk to a lot of people on the for-profit side, they view nonprofit the nonprofit sphere is something that they'll go and bestow their knowledge and their expertise to help out these poor nonprofit people who might have a failure of imagination or might not be as smart or might not have the mm-hmm. degrees that they have. But this is all false. I mean, I, I view mm-hmm. nonprofits as being some of the more innovative businesses in the country mm-hmm. of really testing out a lot of ideas that you can't test out in for-profit spaces or you can't do them as well. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about words like the collective, these are words that no way are they ever going to be in any for-profit space, which is more driven by, you know, making money. And and mm-hmm. so for-profits generally have a more hierarchical authoritarian approach to things. And nonprofits are really moving really quickly to this new style of management and governance and leadership, which is much more about the community that the nonprofit mm-hmm. is as a, as a business and that the community it serves. And so, you know, like who should make the decisions in a nonprofit like NaNoWriMo? So this is, this is a question, who owns NaNoWriMo? You know, we are part of the mm-hmm. community. And so I feel like the staff me, the board, the people who participate, we need to find ways to do more collective decision-making in the end. And so I I just see Mm -hmm. this as an interesting new realm to flatten the hierarchy and to find ways to do it where you're tapping into other people's expertise in different ways. Public benefit corporations Mm -hmm. being this other new area. The big brouhaha is a publicly traded company that wants to become a public benefit corp because they think that Mm -hmm. that's in the best interest of the long-term future of not only their clients, but the research itself, mission-based yeah. And driven by long-term good. Now we're getting into a conversation about environmental social governance, ESG, how certain funds invest, large pension funds, in different portfolios and, and holdings. Either these groups are going to become public benefit corps or they're going to change those ESG rules so that people can invest in alignment with their mm-hmm. values and allow CEOs and corporate boards to choose to do the right thing on the basis of what's going to be best for the future of the environment. So many of our for-profit businesses aren't designed to do good in the world. Like I remember when Google went public, they were praised by their, their somewhere in their bylaws, they had do no harm. I'm just like, why not go all out and do good? <laughs> like, why just stop with doing no harm? And that was supposed to be kind of revolutionary that they pledged to do no harm. It's like we make this assumption. These for-profit institutions, many of them are designed to do bad. This is where nonprofits become sort of revolutionary. We are designed to do good. And so we're not always looking to make money from what we do. Sometimes we have to, but we're always like putting it through that filter of like, is this good? It's a very fundamental filter to look at things through. And so if nonprofits were running Exxon, well, Exxon might be more into solar power and wind power right now. They might be focused more on like the longevity of the planet and they might even be making more money. Who knows? It's just where you start from. And as a society, is it our premise to grow the GDP? Does that represent the health of our society? I don't think so, but a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we've created this society and these, you know, institutions by design to sort of fail us in the long term. A lot of the tech people, the tech billionaires or millionaires, they already think they're doing good in the world. The old GOP, the Reagan and Bush GOP, did believe in philanthropy, that you should volunteer and you should be involved. 
he mentioned in the presidential debates that year too, in, in 1988. Mm. It's a fascinating metaphor to go back to speaking of philanthropy, because that was his safety net. That was sort of Bush's mm. idea of what the New Deal would be. It was like, we don't need all these government programs because we have a thousand points of light, which spoke to philanthropists, but also spoke to churches too, as a way of getting the church. So a thousand points of light, he would be like, don't worry about homelessness, don't worry about healthcare, whatever it is, because there's a thousand points of light out there. And so it's like, what is a thousand points of light? Well, it was like churches or wealthy philanthropists who were going to pick up the slack and take care of the world. So it's a very aristocratic mm -hmm. notion in some senses. There was no system mm -hmm. to it. If you're going to wake up without health insurance and had cancer or needed expensive drugs, like who, where are you going to go for, for this? Which thousand point of light <laughs> is going to provide that? Like, like It's a um, bright one. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it was a way of maintaining the status quo and the division between rich people and poor people and the way to make a very unsafe safety net in the end. But it was a metaphor that guided his campaign and that really worked politically. Fascinating. Speaking of stories. Yeah. A metaphor. That, that particular comment keeps coming up in the back of my mind. You've been the first person to actually say it out loud. And it's exciting to me because there is some sense that the areas of philanthropy that we talk about, oh, those just should be government programs. But it's exactly that kind of history, recent history. It might not feel that recent to us because we're aging in real time. But, you know, as these things are over five decades, let's say, that is still significant and it's still part of the narrative that people mm -hmm. use when talking about charity. Charity specifically, whether it's healthcare or providing for people who are burdened and oppressed by debt cages. I think it speaks even to what you were talking about in the show. Nonprofit work is being uncompensated to be a martyr for it. I think there's this sense of yeah. this thousand points of light. They're just these these sources of light in the world and they will they'll help everybody out and they don't need to be cared for or paid. <laughs> They're just going to yeah. be there magically. It's a magical vision of life and one that you can probably have only by being a pretty privileged person to start with. Mm. And there are many dystopian novels about this subject being mm. written during NaNoWriMo. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is a perfect example as far as GDP goes. GDP is not accounting for all of the hours I've been put in every November in NaNoWriMo. And that's a real failing of that system. How we understand something like the energetic output and impact. And that's just one small example. Of yeah, who is it that puts up? The... No, no, that, that was it. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was going to say the gross domestic happiness index or something like that. It's a version of GDP, but it's focused on happiness instead of product. I think that that's a healthier way to view society. And that's where the NaNoWriMo writing of novels would fit in, gross mm -hmm. domestic happiness. That's also where being a good caretaker of the planet would fit in. It's a whole different orientation to think about what you're going to do to care for the world around you as opposed to make money off of it. Yeah. There doesn't have to be a con conflict or a tension between them. I think that sometimes we just can make that assumption. I'm thinking that, that some of our most useful inventions have, have come out of useless pursuits. Letting your imagination go and entertain all these what-if questions just for the fun of it. Oftentimes, that's the path. That's the path we need mm -hmm. to get to these like wonderful places. There is a lot of hard economic crossover. This experience of imagination that both you and Sarah touched on 
is a very grounding theme throughout all of our interviews up to this point. But even more so is this idea of being able to be multidisciplined in our thought and application. I think we're leaving that time where people only have this one thing that fits in a title and we're moving into something that's a lot more whole and real for that matter. Writing is thinking. I think writing is the primary tool of critical thinking. And that's that's why I think it's important. This was a really great conversation for a lot of reasons, um, mm-hmm. but primarily because you came to this conversation and shared your whole self with us. Mm-hmm. You were willing to talk about economics. You were willing <laughs> to talk about the future and science fiction. That's variety. Some good variety. <laughs> Thank you. It was, yeah. it was a nice conversation with you guys. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was really great. Thank you. It was fun. So I thought it would be helpful to start off our discussion with a little more context on National Novel Writing Month and what they're up to with this movement and community that they're building. I am by no means an expert on it. (laughs) I feel like this is Grant's expertise. Right. But my understanding is that it started in 1999, mostly as a challenge to write 50,000 words of a novel during the 30 days of November. Now it is a year-round program that starts November 1st in the spirit of that same competition. I don't know how to describe, do you think challenge feels right to say it's a challenge? If it is a competition, it's a competition with yourself. Invitation, collective moment, shared experience. There is something about people all doing it together, right? That is part of the power is that there is a particular time and a particular timeline that thousands of people are attempting a individual challenge, but in community. So collective challenge. National Novel Writing Month is a phenomenon that's grown to a program that's 646 regions around the world in thousands of classrooms that nearly half a million people participate in every November. As a nonprofit, it's interesting because it supports writing fluency and education. I also like what you mentioned about the community aspect because it's also a social network for writers, a form of support for writers. Writing can be a very solitary pursuit. Yep. In this season, this is one of the more unusual organizations in philanthropy because it's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when people think about a philanthropic organization. Had you heard of National Novel Writing Month prior to meeting Grant? I had. A friend of mine had sent me his prep notes for his podcast, and they were so long that he was like, this is my submission for NaNoWriMo Month, because it was in November that he sent it to me. And I was like, oh, that's funny. So it came to me as humor, which is usually... I feel like an indication that it's reached a certain threshold in the like social dialogue that it can be humorous. I think it always had this element of not taking yourself too seriously and humor. It was Mm -hmm. about making writing more accessible. I do think that there is a tremendous amount of Grant's spirit Mm-hmm. alive in NaNoWriMo today mm-hmm. because it's also reflected in his book like Pep Talks for Writers where the message is very much that everyone can be creative but that creativity is something that we have to practice and we have to be willing 
to put ourselves out there, whether it's on the page or you know, applying our craft to something that is unfamiliar. I think that's a big benefit of participating in NaNoWriMo is that it sort of gets you out of a rut. <laughs> it forces you to try to just put your ideas down on the page. And creative blocks are something that writers often struggle with, as yeah. do many artists in, in different right. forms. Yeah. I don't know how that works into other areas like film. You and I were talking the other day about documentary film and one of the upsides being that you don't script people's stories for them, Yeah, that they tell their own story. That's also not to say that you don't need strong editing and language skills for film. You do. You still have to be able to craft the narrative, but it's a different process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to think about it writing being an important tool for our society because it's a way of starting to understand our own ideas and become more clear about them and have a better way of communicating them is through writing. It's usually that first process of clarifying what we're thinking, how we're thinking about it, whether the writing is the form we share it or not. It might not be. It might just be a way of working out an idea. And that is is pretty important for then being able to communicate with others and come to shared ideas or exchange of ideas. In order mm -hmm. to really listen and understand what the other person is trying to communicate, a big part of community conversation is being able to sit with creative tension, but more specifically, just uncomfortable emotions. That's something that our own society is struggling with, having a conversation around things that might be difficult. And writing is something that helps you to better understand your own perception and to get clarity mm -hmm. around your own experience. But it's not something that can happen if you're trying to appease other people's questions. If you're answering to some other force, it's something that is part of how people communicate as individuals. And, and that's why writing continues to exist in this form. Long form, 50,000 words, really getting into the, the, the spirit of who you are as a creative person. Yeah. There's another aspect of this that's like doubt. When you hear somebody say something and you're unclear, you ask mm -hmm. for more information, sometimes there's nothing concrete that comes from that initial engagement. It's something that you sort of like need to go away and process. And writing is one of those things that allows people to sort of distill their thoughts not as a rebuttal per se, but just like put some of their own ideas next to the perception or ideas, values that the other person is sharing. Or even within themselves, right? Like your own refinement process of understanding thought and idea of moving from initial concept into drafts and refinement and better understanding and better communication. And seeing how you can go from like, oh, I've got like this idea and it's in my head and sort of swirling around. I can't quite get it into the words that communicate what I know is already there. So it's that ability to go from it's clicking in my brain, but how do I communicate it in a way that actually connects with someone else? And that process can take a lot of revisions or a lot of practice. And writing is an accessible way to do that on your own. Just even being able to see the reflection back of your own thoughts and ideas and see if they still make sense to you the next day will probably be a good indication of whether it could make sense to someone else. It's a powerful tool. Another part that might get lost in translation here is that he's not necessarily advocating for free writing as just like a blank page. 
he often mm. uses writing prompts as a place to begin and then people turn it into whatever they'd like. And that is also a way of unearthing attitudes and stories. But sometimes it's just ideas that haven't been crystallized yet. Yeah. I think for creative writing in particular, there aren't a lot of rules. You can start with a prompt or you can have mm -hmm. a conversation and the conversation can be your prompt. We didn't really get into much about his strategies for writers and where to begin. There's certainly plenty of that out there. He's, he's got books you can reference. I mm. think to your point about philanthropy, this isn't something that necessarily feels like a purely philanthropic initiative. Mm -hmm. And yet... Mm -hmm. Literacy is a philanthropic initiative because many people struggle with writing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an important part of culture and society and this space where civil society intersects with philanthropy. These are some of the tools and moving pieces that help with a thriving society is being able to provide resources that help make something like writing accessible, that help encourage people to express themselves, to develop the tools and capacities for communication, whether that's in a creative form or in a dialogue form or in a conversational form. These are foundational pieces of a healthy society, which to me seems like a perfect and important place for philanthropy to be investing in. I think that's why I love having Grant on the show is it helps bring in the less obvious forms of philanthropy that are important to support in this ecosystem that helps make it healthy. Writing is part of the arts. And mm -hmm. you know, we started this season with the arts and supporting the arts. I think sometimes we think of writing as something that you do only in school or only right. for work. Not the same thing. Creative writing yeah. is something else entirely. It just makes me think, too, about how it's an important antidote to either over-commercialization or over-consumption is our own expression and an expression in a way that is not commercialized. And maybe it will be, and that's great if someone, you know, produces a novel out of this, but it doesn't have to be about the outcomes or about you're not only successful if you get a book deal. Like there's there's a power and a value in a process that connects to some of the core parts of what it means to be human. Thinking about what it means to be human in a time of COVID where there's a lot of isolation, I think is another interesting application of mm -hmm. writing as a hobby, as a craft, because the entire world has been experiencing many different degrees of isolation. And part of the loneliness of isolation is, I think to some degree, depends on your connection to yourself. And writing is something mm -hmm. that helps people find that inner voice that may help them to not feel so alone. Yeah, I think in the larger landscape of philanthropy and understanding the core idea for the love of humanity and the various ways that philanthropy shows up, it's these, what I'm going to call like softer, subtler things that I think can get overlooked in that discussion and yet have such a powerful impact on the larger landscape of a healthy society. So just to reiterate, it's like it's really important that it be part of the conversation, be represented in how we understand the future of philanthropy and how we're organizing to become even better. 
part of philanthropy is involvement and writing is something that allows people to be involved in their own lives. Yeah. You were talking about commercialism and I'm not sure that writing is the antithesis of commercialism because it's not (laughs) advertising and marketing, bringing words together here, folks. But there is something about engaging with your own inner dialogue that happens through writing and thinking about your thinking, which is a necessary part of being involved and engaged in life and in like creating a purposeful life. You want a healthy society. Okay, yeah, but that's like a way out there end goal without having a rich interpersonal life. It's pretty hard to then ask people to be involved with one another because that sort of like mindlessness, <laughs> inability to see yourself or your own place and express your ideas in a way that is clear and understandable for others is a necessary part of living in community with others. Yeah. And I think it's what Grant mentions about the community itself of NaNoWriMo and their funding coming in small portions from a large community. I think also it creates a sense of collective ownership and involvement and being able to invest into something that gives to you, but you know gives equally to others. It's Interesting to think about writing being an important tool for our society because it's a way of starting to understand our own ideas and have a better way of communicating them. It might just be a way of working out an idea. This is pretty important for then being able to communicate with others and come to shared ideas or exchange of ideas and even have more productive dialogue is when there's space for working those ideas out. As we look at the larger conversation around what makes a thriving society, having space like this is an important one. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joanne. And I'm Sarah. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us for the next episode. 